Welcome to episode two of the San Luis Obispo podcast. Hello, hello. Thank you to everyone who listened to our first episode. We really loved hearing how much you all enjoyed the episode and please keep the feedback coming. It's really helping us shape how we want to do these episodes in order to give you guys the best product. So in this episode, Emerson and I sit down with Hillary Trout. Hillary is a local business leader and currently is a CFO of both iFixit and Azuki, the president of board for Slow's Chamber of Commerce and the treasurer of French Hospital's Medical Foundation. So iFixit creates and publishes wiki-like online repair guides for consumer electronics. Why replace things when you can fix them yourself? It's a super cool company that has over 1.2 million users. I highly recommend checking it out with all this extra quarantine time you have in your hands. Maybe take out that old broken iPhone, Keurig, or whatever else you have laying around and see if you can fix it. Dazuki, on the other hand, is a company that spun off of iFixit and helps companies create innovative visual documentation. Dazuki helps standardize processes to reduce errors, reduce training times, and even track employee performances. If you are a company looking to tighten the bolts on your business, Dazuki is for you. Aside of all of her responsibilities in San Luis Obispo, Hillary is a successful cardio athlete participating in open water swims and triathlons. She enjoys workouts that are even longer than her resume. Welcome to the show. This is Hillary Trout. This is San Luis Obispo's podcast featuring locals, legends, and leaders. Welcome. Hello, Hillary. Thank you so much for being here with us today. How are you? Doing great. Thank you guys so much for having me on. It's exciting to be here. I enjoyed your first podcast. It was well done, well produced. So congratulations on your new startup. And it's great to be here as your second episode guest. Thank you so much. Uh, we had a good time producing it and still working out the kinks for things and creating the format of the episodes. But and yeah, it's been super fun. And I, I guess we'll just kind of dive into it. Like you're leading two companies right now in one of the most hectic times uh, for the business world. What is that looking like for you? It's a lot of work. You know, I'm not going to lie. The The day that we all realized that uh, COVID-19 was going to be around long enough for us to really be impacted was an interesting moment because we had to make a huge pivot as a company from thinking about success and growth and all the wonderful things we're doing to shifting toward mitigation planning, cash flow planning, looking at every possible scenario that could be coming down the pipe and saying, what are we going to do next? And that's a lot of work. It really, really is. Yeah, it sounds unbelievable. Yeah, it seems like you guys had to pivot really fast. <laughs> it really is. And especially in the, when you're in the middle of big projects, big initiatives, you have a whole bunch of teams going 100 miles an hour on completely unrelated things. And the whole world comes to a screeching halt really in like seven days. And you just have to be ready. You have to be ready to communicate. You have to be ready with new action, new leadership, new direction. How are we all going to keep each other physically safe? How are we going to be economically safe? And that is just a lot of work for a lot of leaders to pull off in a very short period of time. Yeah, I can only imagine. 
Uh, for those that are out, out there who don't know, do you mind elaborating on what iFixit and Dazuki are as companies? Sure thing. So iFixit was started about 15 years ago by two gentlemen who were Cal Poly students at the time. They were trying to repair one of their laptops and were struggling mightily with parts and instruction manuals. So they decided to take it upon themselves and create their own company called iFixit, which really is the world's largest online repair manual. They are completely committed to making sure that there's a way to repair everything in the world, regardless of what it is. Uh, we have a very heavy electronics and technology focus just because that's the origin of our company. But we're doing a lot of stuff right now uh, that is completely unrelated to that. And so iFixit does the repair manuals online. It's all community-based. Um, and then we also, uh, at some point, probably almost 10 years ago, I'd actually have to go back through our history books to see, uh, we started a software component called Dazuki, and that was actually organically grown out of the company, and a small team was committed to putting it together, and it got so successful and so substantial as a group that it became its own division, and then eventually became its own company when we spun it out on, uh, let's see, it was the beginning of 2019, so it's it's been its own company for about a year. Previously, it was a subsidiary of iFixit, and so Dazuki focuses on the standardization of processes, and, and they provide the platform and technology to help really large uh, companies with standardization in a very streamlined and simple-to-use way so that there's less time spent training employees, more, spent, more time spent actually understanding the process, understanding what your job is, and then doing your job. So it's really aimed at a lot of large-scale manufacturers uh, and people who have you know, highly standard processes to do their work. So that would be like decreasing overhead through online trainings or modules? Uh, we do. On, we, we have a, a cloud hosting platform for the solution, but we also do on-premise installations of it so you can have it right there on your own servers. And it really is maximizing technology to help employees with standard work while minimizing the impact on management and supervisors so they can be dealing with their you know, biggest priorities rather than going over and over with training uh, as, as people get hired on, as they're expanding, as, as staff turns over. And so people can get to work quicker and learn quicker and make sure that they're doing things more precisely and within the parameters of the production process. That's awesome. I can imagine even now that's probably more useful than ever with all this going on with COVID and how people are going to need to be retrained and there's going to be new people in new positions and companies that are hiring, like Amazon's hiring a bunch of workers right now. And like a software like that might be able to help them sort of train these workers in a super efficient way. Yeah, exactly. And I just started a new job and I'm just doing trainings from home currently. And it's allowed me to do that remotely easily as someone who's just got on board too. Absolutely. And you know, the companies that use us are really varied. We have Husqvarna, which makes tools, T-Mobile, Patagonia, Sleep Number, the ones that make the beds, Pepsi, Facebook, um, a lot of food producers. We actually have received correspondence from a Fortune 500, Fortune 100 companies in the last two weeks deeming us an essential business because they're such a, we're such a critical component of their supply chain and their training program and how they fill their how they fill their um, de demand, and they've said you better keep your servers on and keep going because we need you. So, you know, our client base is quite varied, and we're learning through this time how much people are relying on our 
company, um, which is a little bit of a surprise because we, you know, we, we get a little bit blinded and we go, okay, we think we're great, but does everybody else? Well, it turns <laughs> out they just rely on us heavier than we could have imagined. Yeah, that makes sense. And with Corona right now, with from the company side of things, since you're saying they rely on you so much, is that increasing tensions at the company? You know, it's interesting because uh, the Dazuki company that, uh, you know, spun out just a year ago has a very different operating model than iFixit. Uh, Dazuki is a platform and a lot of our company is already work at home, remote employees. We have employees all over the nation. We have some folks overseas that, that uh, do work for us as well. And so we're accustomed to remote work. And so when this happened, we sent out a notice to all of our employees and said, okay, just don't come to the office anymore. And they don't. Some people came and got their monitors or their technology that they have at their desk. But really, we did business as usual and uh, are working hard to make sure that we're there for our customers, there for people who now need us that were not our customers before. And you know, it's, it's an interesting time for us because you know, demand seems to be there. It seems to be staying positive and and in that sense, we're really grateful for that. But we're, we're glad we can play a part in the, the pipeline of companies that are really on the front lines dealing with the crisis. That's, that's amazing. And I'm super curious to know, like, what was the biggest challenge that like a leadership position would face that maybe other people have, don't even know about? Like, for me, it's like, I don't run a business. I don't know what's going on. It's like, when this all was going down, like, what was your first thing you were like, oh, wow, this is what this is number one on the agenda. What am I going to take care of? Absolutely. You know, in all situations that are disruptive, communication is absolutely the number one most important thing. And that certainly played true here. Uh, you know, our, our entire team is amazing. I mean, we have amazing people on both sides of both iFixit and Dazuki, and they all lean into challenges and we all step up and, and you know, it's game time. And when a crisis hits, they turn to their leaders to make sure they understand what's expected of them, make sure that they understand what's next so they can be prepared, uh, not only in their work and their work product, but emotionally and mentally so they can show up ready to go. And it all happens through communication. So in, in any business, the better the leadership team is able to communicate on an ongoing basis and have that ongoing rapport with their staff, the better crisis communication is going to go that's that's awesome and, and what does a company like ifixit or Suzuki use to communicate with their employees uh, we use slack it's a great tool and uh, we use it probably more than we should but it, <laughs> it really is an outstanding tool and we have various channels set up in slack that are topical and so we have a, a channel in our our slack where everybody sees it it's for all announcements like where to find toilet paper where to find wipes and inside information <laughs> inside information who's stocked right now and it's also used for company-wide announcement and one of the great things about slack is it's a very informal communication uh platform and it's it's very chatty it's very um comfortable to just pop off and it's it's almost like texting but it's for a lot of different people all at once and so that's always really nice but when you're communicating on major topics company-wide the messages are a little longer they're a little bit more in depth um, and so we tend to link off to different documents and like Google documents that may have more information or, or official policy uh, as things shape up. But for the most part, we're communicating through Slack. We were on Zoom years ago, so we've been on Zoom for a long time. Um, and so 
we've always used those technologies and we continue to use those technologies. Yeah, it's interesting to see as Corona's dove into everything, a lot of the economy's gone down a lot and companies are really feeling it. But there are some companies that are being used a lot more nowadays that are a lot of tech based, like including Zoom. I was looking at like the stocks and Zoom's stock has gone through the roof because everyone all companies are now remote and they're all communicating through Zoom now. Yeah, it is interesting to see how this is affecting business and how it's going to affect the future of business. And Braden and I were talking earlier, and it's like, I wonder if some businesses will realize like, oh, we are able to completely function without an office space and, and how the office space might change in this post-corona world. Oh, it's it's already happening and it's been happening for some time. I think this will just be a big push to p- take people there. Um, it's interesting, one of the companies that we use for sales tax compliance uh, uh, emerged uh, because of their of the Wayfair decision that came out, I think it was two years ago, that essentially said that states could tax remote sellers. So you don't have to be in the state to be taxed by that state, which is a completely new thing. It overturned a whole lot of standing law and a company got formed, a bunch of companies got formed to address this major compliance needs and when you know COVID-19 came front and center, they s- reached out to us and said, hey, guess what? We've always been 100% remote workforce. All of our employees work at home. We've never really had an office space, so nothing's changing for us. So you will always be compliant. And that was interesting to me because it never occurred to me to wonder if they were 100% remote, but they always had been. So I think there's a lot of companies that were prepared for this unwittingly because they were already remote a lot like dazuki mm-hmm. and other companies who are being forced to adapt and change and may like it there are also some companies that just can't do it because they deal in physical product so it'll be interesting to see how this shapes up yeah it's gonna be interesting to see people whether they have the entrepreneur side of things to be disciplined at home or i mean deal with because i imagine it'd be really hard if you have a bunch of young kids around your house and you don't have the space to have your office that's got to be a very difficult scenario to live in and be successful in your work absolutely and san luis has been changing so much and for the average person like myself i look at downtown san luis almost entirely tourism based a lot of restaurants and sort of shops that you walk into and as someone who's super involved in chamber of commerce like yourself what are businesses doing like for me it just looks like oh a restaurant can just you know have people order in and it can be taken out or delivered but i'm sure there's more intricate intricacies to that what is what is going on there oh absolutely you know we we've taken away human connection face to face through this crisis and retailers with a shop restaurants with with dine-in uh, or even walk-up uh, options really dealt in the face to face whether you're walking in to buy a pair of pants and you're greeted by you know a salesperson who's there to walk you through the buying experience or you're going to a restaurant and being told your menu options, those are very face-to-face interpersonal relationships that, you know, you may be a regular, you may be a first-timer, but it's part of the experience. And I think that our society will always have that because we crave it, we enjoy it. But what these retailers and restaurants are doing right now, especially in San Luis Obispo, is really adapting to a new world and trying not to fail through this time. You know, it's it's tough for them. They're, they're not accustomed to doing it this way. Most of them don't have online presence. And so they're having to pivot quickly to having an online store and getting that promoted 
pivot quickly to managing takeout realities. It's not the same as having a sit down restaurant where someone's in your restaurant for an hour. They're in your restaurant now for two minutes. They're, they dash in and dash out. Those are very different business models. And, you know, they're, they're pivoting and they're adapting quickly, but you know, they're, they're still holding their core values as a business, their core personalities, a business, because eventually this, this should end. Um, and they'll get back to their new normal, but they are pivoting and they are pivoting quickly. Yeah. It seems like there's a lot of damage control going on right now. Just trying to float this time that could be indefinitely long. Um, I know that they just changed in San Luis Obispo that you can go and have takeout drinks from restaurants now, which is kind of an interesting thing. It was funny to me that they specifically asked you not to put the takeout alcoholic drink in your cup holder, (laughs) but I'm not sure where else you would put a takeout drink in your car. That's a perfect example of collaboration between government and business because everybody knows that there are incredible risks of having open alcohol in a vehicle. Um, but this is a situation where you know the businesses have proposed a possible solution to keep themselves afloat and keep economic health, and the you know government for from whatever channel I'm sure there's the legal challenges must be ins- insanely difficult to overcome right now. Uh, but they're looking at it going, okay, we will allow this or um, whatever has happened between government government and business through this. That's a perfect example of you know how adaptive people have become through through this whole process. That's very interesting. And being so involved in the chamber, that is, can you explain what exactly the chamber does for those of us who don't actually know? Absolutely. The uh, Chamber of Commerce is a civic organization. It's a nonprofit organized under the tax code to not be a for-profit company, but it brings together uh, business organizations and represents the interests of business in a community. And a lot of times that's representing them to the government and being an advocate for business, or it's representing it to community members, uh, whatever the, the form will take. A chamber of commerce is the organization that brings together the voices of many, many businesses into a single voice. And so it's, you know, the San Luis Obispo Chamber of Commerce is 1,400 members strong. It's actually one of the largest chambers of commerce in the United States. It's bigger than a lot of metropolitan chambers simply because we're so engaged here and and so proactive in business partnerships with government, business partnerships with each other and other, other organizations, including nonprofits. And so Chamber of Commerce is really a unifying voice that brings people together. Wow, that's amazing. I would have thought it was going to be a small board of members working this, but it's actually like a living community and trying to overcome things like this. Oh, absolutely. Our, our board of directors is 21 people representing business. They're typically in business leadership positions, either as a business owner or an officer. Uh, and, you know, they they it's a volunteer position. You're definitely not paid. Uh, but outside of the board, we have committees and those committees can be anywhere from 15 to 25 people and they're focused on specific topics. And that's the case with most chambers of commerce. We have a legislative uh, committee that focuses on legislative issues such as tax measures, uh, law that affects businesses. We have an economic development committee which addresses economic situations such as this. They're very, very busy committee right now. We have another group that's focused on the hot topics of what's going on in business right now. The business council, they're like the think tank of what's upcoming for the businesses. So there are numerous committees that 
get involved with the chamber, one of the most interesting committees is what we call the ambassador committee. And these, these are the people that reach out to businesses, interact with businesses, and help them connect with each other and help them find the resources of the committees and the community. And that that has always been done face-to-face or through very you know personal com- conversations with people, whether it's on the phone or emails. Um, and that that's an interesting one because a lot of business gets done over events, whether it's you know cocktail hour or coffee or whatever it is. And that ambassador committee has a lot of work that goes into the communication between business and chamber and and they're definitely being affected because nobody's having events right now so they're having to do outreach in a whole new way wow yeah if someone out there was wanting to become involved in the chamber and say they have their own business and want to be a part of the community how would they go about doing that oh absolutely uh our our organization our website slowchamber.com outlines what we do for businesses and what membership means and there's all sorts of different uh services that we provide everyone has different needs obviously a restaurant will have a different need than a tech company and so everyone participates in the chamber in a different way but there's always a way to participate because we do so much for the community and we do so much for our business members and so becoming a member is rather easy you know it's, it's being introduced to the organization having a discussion about what you're looking for out of your membership with the chamber so that we can help deliver that ex- on that expectation so you can get the value out of it uh, most of our members, I would say all of our members, uh, because they're still around, value their membership because they are getting something out of it. And it's because we're connecting with them on their needs and meeting that need. Absolutely. And that makes a lot of sense because as someone who is not a young person coming up in San Luis Obispo who is only seeing the face of the city and not what's going on behind it, it makes a lot of sense that all this interconnectivity between business, because there's always such an amazing sense of community here that anyone who's been to slow understands and realizes is there a way for people who aren't necessarily in business or students looking to sort of meet people in business is there a way that they can get involved or volunteer through the chamber just to help out absolutely one of the great things about san Luis obispo is the sheer number of nonprofits that we have um, i've never fact fact checked this but i actually have heard of someone you know a lot of people say that our community has the most nonprofit organizations per capita of anywhere in the world. Have I fact-checked it? No. Is there actually a statistic for that? I have no idea. But seeing the sheer number of nonprofit organizations that exist in this community, I might actually believe it. So we have well over a 1,000 that are in this region. And when I say region, I'm including everything from everything from Vandenberg up through San Miguel. Um, that's Coast. our region. Yeah, that makes sense for a place like this to exist in such an amazing way you kind of got to look under the floorboards to see who's really holding us up yeah so whatever your causes whatever makes your socks go up and down i'm absolutely certain that there's a way for you to connect with organizations and become involved at various levels and, and with various means you know people can you know donate their time their talent their treasure um and become involved in various ways but there's always a way to connect with with organizations and and be generous with yourself. Uh, the Slow Chamber, we have numerous nonprofit members. I want to say we have probably 75 to 100 and very involved. And you know, we always list them on our website. They're in our me- membership section. And I know that all the chambers in the region do the same. That's, that's awesome. And um, I was also reading that you are involved in French Hospital. And of course, they are kind of the focal point of 
everything going on right now as a hospital. They're the caregivers of the community, and I can only imagine the struggles that they're going through. How are you involved with them, and what does it look like over there? Oh, it's amazing. I mean, you have to understand a little bit about French Hospital's history to really appreciate what we have here in our community. Um, French Hospital was um, founded a long time ago, uh, long before I was ever around, by Dr. French. That's where the name came from. And he opened a hospital uh, on Monterey Street, and it served the community. It's a community hospital. And uh, some time ago, it relocated to its current location on Johnson Avenue. And it had a bumpy past. It, it was bought by a group of people. It was bought by a couple different people and corporations. And at one point, French Hospital was almost defunct. It almost went under and was gone. But it was resurrected. It was saved um, and was taken over by Dignity Health, who's the corporate owner of of the hospital and the interesting thing about dignity hospitals is that it's a nonprofit hospital which means we don't have shareholders we don't have to give out dividends we don't have to give return on investment our shareholders our uh, constituents are the people in this community so everyone in this community is a beneficiary of french hospital and that's the wonderful thing about a community hospital is that we aren't trying to appease shareholders and and meet earnings expectations. Obviously, we need to be profitable. We need to be successful to continue to be a going concern. But you know, really, our profits, our uh, money we make is reinvested into the hospital in various in various ways. Whether it's improvements, you know, expansion into different areas, community programs, whatever it is. Um, that's how the hospital actually functions. There is a uh, foundation that uh, French Hospital is affiliated with. That's called the French Hospital Foundation, and it's a group that st- stands alone from the hospital that raises money to support capital projects and certain operating programs of the hospital. Uh, so the, f- the foundation raises money every year, se- several million dollars from the community and various various organizations and grants and events uh, to fund the foundation. We have endowments. We have people who are very specific in what they want to give. And so we have donations that go to specific purposes. And then we have people that are giving to the greatest area of need. And we use those funds. 100% of the funds go to the area that's being supported. And that's what French Hospital uh, relies on to keep relevant, to keep current, to keep abreast of tech technology changes to keep abreast of different procedures and treatments and to keep the facility in in, in good order. Uh, one of the most exciting things that happened recently, you know, French Hospital Foundation launched a, a pretty sizable capital campaign uh, called Beyond Health, and it's to raise money for essentially your new French hospital. And that, that facility that we're in is very old. Uh, we just completed the Oppenheimer Emergency Department if you haven't driven by it, it's beautiful. Uh, we really appreciate the donation of the Oppenheimer family who made that department a thing that we could do. And that department now serves the community, and it's, and it's been open just a little while. But that's an example of how French Hospital you know, invests in the community is people donate to it. We use those funds to improve the hospital, to buy the equipment needed to support the hospital, and to fund really important programs in the community. Yeah, I had no idea that French Hospital was owned by this community. But I was thinking about, so to, with coronavirus, the hospitals, and I fix it, I've been reading a lot about respirators and how they're not really meant to be ran 24 hours, seven days a week, and a lot of them are breaking down. 
Does iFixit have guides on how to fix these sorts of things? Yes, actually, that's an interesting question. Um, when this all started happening, we started seeing a trend in our traffic of people searching our database for how to fix medical equipment. And that's traditionally been a very closed system. In the past, if your medical equipment broke down, you called the manufacturer, they sent out a service tech, maybe a loaner device while it was being repaired. And it was traditionally a longer cycle to repair it. And so, you know, we, we looked at it and said, well, we have repair manuals for our, just about everything else. Why can't we have repair manuals for medical equipment? So we started crowdsourcing them and a lot of manufacturers are very hesitant to put them out because they are very difficult uh, machines to build and understand and design. And I'm sure they all have concerns about their patents and, and so many things. Uh, but, but repairability is what our, our business is about. And it's a huge value for us to have something that's repairable. And so we started crowdsourcing repair manuals schematics you name it and making them available on our website and people are searching for them people are reading them and we have people in the community the worldwide community contributing to how to actually service machines and how to do the work and it's interesting because you look at a doctor i mean they can reconstruct a hand they can reconstruct a face i'm sure they can do what is needed to a piece of technology to make it continue to function and so we're trying to play our part by using our repair mentality to provide the content that they need to service their equipment and that includes the respirators it includes so many things that they're using right now and the information's out there we're trying to get it into people's hands that's that's incredibly interesting and we had talked earlier you had mentioned there was sort of a ideology behind making something repairable and making something into something that lasts way longer do you want to elaborate on what that actually was? Absolutely. I think one interesting uh, side benefit of this crisis has been the impact it's had on our environment. I mean, we all know the air is cleaner. We saw the canals of Italy, you know, and the fish swimming in them. They were always green. <laughs> and was that water exactly? Um, and so we're seeing the, the benefit of not using up resources. And repair is all about that. It is not throwing things away and instead fixing them. And that's been our values, you know, our entire corporate existence. And it's what we're about. It's what we do is help people fix things instead of throwing them away because throwing away something, even as small as a, a cell phone is hugely damaging to the environment because we have to go buy a new cell phone and all the resources we extracted for that cell phone got wasted. They wound up in a, you know, electronic waste facility and maybe some of the parts got recycled probably not a lot of them um and it's it's damaging so that's what we're about and it's it's the same with the car it's the same with your computer your laptop uh your tractor uh, it's really about prolonging the life of that device and that the item that you're repairing so that you don't have to toss it yeah it'd be interesting to see how many devices i fix it has saved throughout its time we have a counter on our website of you know number of repairs done it, obviously people have to self-report it. It's probably mm -hmm. grossly understated, but super interesting. Yeah, I know through Cal Poly, we had our technical writing class in uh, the engineering college and we had a partnership with iFixit to do a project for the quarter. And we ended up having a Keurig project where we got to 
deconstruct a Keurig and create a guide on how to fix it from the bottom up. And just today I got back a email from them and I have helped 1200 people. It's kind of exciting to see that of how you guys, like you're saying, it's crowdsourced, all community-based If people will make these guides and post them up and it's just going to keep growing and growing and growing and growing. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting because at some point in our history, um, educational institutions started partnering with us and saying, hey, we have students who need to learn technical writing skills or who need to learn, you know, just you know, repairability whether they're doing engineering or product design or whatever their their discipline is and so we actually have a whole program where we connect students with repair needs and uh, we ship them the device that needs to be repaired we, we have to go find the device um, and then they write up how it gets repaired and it winds up on our website and it's a great program because not only are you you know as a student learning how to do a very practical skill, but it's actually going to go and pay itself forward for as long as that, you know, mm -hmm. item exists. And it's wonderful that our EDU department is probably worked with several thousand students over the years and done exactly what you did. Yeah. And I'd say it's had a big impact on my life and my career because that was the first time I'd ever done anything like that yeah. of actually learning how to technically put together a guide like that where a has to lead to B, has to lead to C, and you can't have any breaks in between. And I know you guys did a very good job of monitoring us, of basically auditing us. We put it in. They look at her and like, hey, you forgot to put in this screw here and go back and go through it again and go through it again. But even, I mean, great resume skill too to have. I, I have that on my resume and I've talked about it in multiple job interviews of hands-on experience with, I guess, reverse engineering things. Yeah, and it is interesting because there is there is an interesting uh, concept that your mind kind of has to grapple with when you start to think about it is if you go buy a tractor and uh, the warranty, say, is three years, and during that three-year peri three period, if it breaks down and you try to repair it yourself, you're voiding the warranty. And so do you really actually own that piece of equipment? Is it actually yours? I don't know, is it? It seems like it belongs to the manufacturer if you can't fix your own stuff. And if they won't even publish the repair manuals, if they won't publish the schematics, regardless of the warranty, do you actually own your own thing? And that's an interesting one when you that's start so to think about it is, do I actually own this? Because I actually am not allowed to repair it. Uh, if, if I try, I'm voiding my warranty or I'm, you know, don't have the resources to do it and you know we think we own things but do we really if we can't fix our own things yeah i think they have that on iphones right you can only open it i think you replace your screen. i don't know if you can replace your own screen but i know there's a point to where there's like a seal or something that'll break if it's been tampered with yeah the our challenge has always been with apple you know there's always been a back and forth you know in repairability with them sometimes they loosen it up sometimes they t tighten it down but at the end of the day, you know, your phone is probably not under warranty anymore. The warranty period is so short that if your phone's broken, fix it. Just bust it open and fix it. It's okay. Like, it's not going to void the warranty because you probably don't have one anymore. I don't even have my phone. It's on lease. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, where do you think that repair is headed? I think it's inevitable. I think we are a society, a global society, that has more and more stuff 
and we can't be disposable you know we've banned straws we've banned plastic bags we've banned a lot of the easy things and it's going to be harder and harder for us to eliminate waste so i think repair is inevitable and during times of crisis uh, people aren't buying the shiny new objects they're trying to repair their current objects so people are going to start to tinker with their stuff especially if they're home and they they have time on their hands they're going to start repairing things and find out how easy it can be, especially when you have support through, uh, you know, platforms like ifixit.com or YouTube videos or peers or wherever you're getting your resources for repair instructions. People are going to start to realize that they can repair things and they're going to start doing it. And it really is going to be grassroots people just taking it upon themselves to make it happen. Yeah, I've seen that a lot at Cal Poly even of people, I guess, moving from a disposable economy to a I guess, a renewable economy. Yeah, and it's interesting because manufacturers are catching on to that. You know, one of the things that our organization, iFixit, does uh, globally is we issue repair scores. And so anytime a new device, particularly an electronic device like a phone, uh, comes out, we try and get advanced copies of that device. We tear it down, find out what what might break, and then we score how repairable it is. Well, this hasn't always gone well for some manufacturers who make things that aren't repairable, and they get mad at us for issuing them a low score because it's a cool product, you just can't fix it. Once it breaks, you throw it away, and and that's creating waste that we don't like. So our repairability score uh, has caught on, and we're actually to the point where some manufacturers are reaching out to us before they put a product to market saying, hey, before we start announcing this product, will you see if it's repairable? What do we need to do to this product to make it repairable? What score would you give this product? And we've had manufacturers of laptops, phones, whatever, send us prototypes that are close to market and say, tell us what you think. We do our normal thing to it. We actually have a team that is all about this, and they don't, they don't care if it's in market or not. They're just going to tear it apart and tell you what's wrong with it from a repairability standpoint. And then they score it, and we give that manufacturer that feedback, and we're like, this is awful. It's not repairable. And we've actually had manufacturers go back to the drawing board and redesign a product to be more repairable. So manufacturers are paying attention and they're already starting to adapt to it. And it's it's really interesting to see them turning to us and other organizations that do repair to get guidance on what does this mean for my new product that I'm about to release. Wow. Seems like really cutting edge stuff. It's exciting times. Yeah. Um, well, I guess... We're at the exciting times, but we know you've lived here your entire life and come from generations of family in San Luis Obispo. Do you mind just diving in on what it was like growing up here? Oh, absolutely. My, my, my grandparents came here. My grandfather used to work for Cal Poly. Uh, my mom went to school in Southern California and you know got married. And I actually was born in Southern California. And when I was a very little girl, we moved back up here because my mom always wanted to come back to San Luis. Um, I really was too young to remember. Um, so we moved back to San Luis, and uh, it's been an incredible experience. I, I knew my whole life that I wanted to stay here and would do what it take to stay uh, as a you know resident of this area, and, and I've succeeded in doing that, uh, sometimes less successful than others because there's been some tight times. It's an expensive place to live, but it's, it's been worth it for me. Mm-hmm. How about like the community as a whole? Has it changed much? 
Um, yes and no. I mean, there's a lot of things that have changed, but there's also a lot of things that haven't. I mean, you look around, you see the beautiful hills. They turn green every spring. There's a lot of our environment around here that is so precious and has been protected. And that that has not been by coincidence. I know that a lot of people in this community really fight to protect the character of this area and usually win because there's enough of us that that want that. Uh, but I've also seen a lot of progress. You know, we, we have not stagnated as a community. We have not turned into a ghost town. And that requires keeping up with the times and keeping up with progress and change and allowing for reasonable growth. I mean, our growth rate in this area is far lower than a lot of growth rates uh, of other areas of similar size. But we've, we've done reasonable growth while preserving our quality of life. And, and so there's been change. But I think it's been good change uh, overall. You know, here and there, an ugly building will pop up. That's fine. There were ugly buildings 100 years ago. <laughs> it's just part of it. Um, but I think overall that the community has done a really good job of balancing quality of life and that charm of this area that we all love and are attracted to with staying progressive and current and not becoming an obsolete ghost town. Definitely. And you had mentioned sort of it being a hard time, it's an expensive place to live. And I know there's a lot of people here that want to stay here. Like run us through, you know, everything from the job history to like what it took, what you had to do in order to stay here. Because I mean, I myself love this area and I know a lot of other people do that might want to like, you know, hang out for a while. Yeah, it's interesting. I, a, a lot of my career path has been accidental and a bit fumbled. But when I look back over it, there was some very strong themes. Um, I, I learned early by accident that I liked accounting, that I liked doing uh, business management. And so I gravitated toward it and was able to find jobs that suited that. I certainly had jobs that I was not suited for. At one point I was an EMT and learned that uh, that wasn't something that played to my strengths. So I quickly left that field. Uh, I was at one point uh, a secretary for public schools, wasn't my thing. So over just trial and error, I found my thing at a very young age when I was in my early 20s, and that was accounting. And I leaned into it. I absolutely leaned into it, and I got excited about it. And excitement's contagious. You know, whether you're dealing with colleagues, peers, a boss, uh, excitement for a, a field is contagious and it's recognizable. And I think that that excitement and leaning into something really is what makes someone successful versus someone who isn't excited. Um, and, and you can see it, you can look around and see people who are cranky or, or you are just not enjoying their jobs. And that's not as exciting. You know, you don't mm -hmm. wanna you know, associate with those folks. You wanna be around people who are excited about it. And so, I leaned into it. I was working for a defense contractor. I was doing cost proposals. I spent thousands and thousands of hours doing cost proposals. And then 9-11 happened, so the whole defense industry shifted. So I decided to get my CPA license, left defense industry, and went into public accounting. And I thought I'd have to start over because I had never done a tax return at that, that point. I had done cost proposals. I had done you know corporate accounting. And you know I started doing tax returns. and doing audits and things like that. And I quickly learned how to do cost accounting for other industries like the wine industry. Um, and it was the same skill set. It was the same excitement. It was that same uh, interest I had. 
but it was now in a completely new industry. And so I've, I've just taken that excitement I have for my work uh, and carried it across the various industries that I've interacted with over my career. And I think that's what has created success is, is I have, you know, really thrown myself into what I really like. And sometimes that means walking away from a job that's good if you don't like it. it that's just part of it. Definitely. And, and I was, I was sort of interested by, you mentioned that you were working for the government and like at a high level and sort of even a classified level, like, were there anything like that most people like don't know what, when it term, comes to working at a level like that? It's interesting. I mean, when you are in an industry that works with the government, I was, I was working for a tech company that did government contracting. Um, and you start to get really involved in products and projects that, are very sensitive in nature. Uh, I learned very quickly that once you know something, you can't unknow it. And you know, a lot of us go through life knowing very little. Um, we watch the news, we get on you know the internet, whatever it is, and we're seeing uh, a filtered view of the of the world that exists in government. And uh, that's kind of a good thing. I, I tend to like fluffy baby kitties, and uh, I like hugging them and you know, petting them and, and I would rather not know some things. And so knowing those things can be difficult. Um, and you know, it was, for me, it was something where I didn't need to be in that world to be happy. I didn't need to know those things. I could, you know, look at the news and go, okay, you know, something's happened and we're getting a snippet of it. And now I know that there's a whole lot more behind that. The, the amount of information that we don't have is substantial and and maybe that's okay um you know, obviously you know in national interest there's things that well you just cannot know or else it would jeopardize what they're doing but uh that was one thing where sometimes you don't want to know um definitely that, that's that's completely understandable there's plenty of things i don't want to know ignorance like, is bliss yeah and I, I found it super interesting you you mentioned 9-11 and like i know there's so many different perspectives on that i mean i was super young i was five maybe when when that all happened like my give us some good conspiracies right now yeah no it, it's <laughs> it's it's different but like what does that day look like when you're working in a government office like what did that where the whole country just in two seconds oh it was interesting um the company i worked for we worked in counterintelligence and our our team was in uh maryland when it happened i think in the office here locally there were maybe just a few of us five i think um, and everybody else was on the East Coast uh, when it happened, un unknowing. We didn't know it was going to happen, obviously. Um, and I remember driving to work, and I turned on the news, and I'm like, uh, something happened, because I don't watch TV in the morning. And I remember slowing down and just kind of pulling over and listening to it for a minute and going, oh, my goodness, my whole world just changed. And I got to the office, and you know, back then the Internet was not what it is today. So going on to a news site was, was not successful because everybody started doing it. Um, and the servers crashed and you couldn't get the pages to load. Um, so it was very difficult to get information. I actually ended up just hooking up a old school TV with some bunny ears to tune into the news. Um, and that was on September 11th. I spent a lot of time glued to the news trying to figure out what was going to happen, uh, communicating with the team that was on the East Coast saying, what is happening? Are you guys safe? Um, and then on September 12th and 13th, we got a fax from every a contracting officer that we were working with and we got stop work orders for every single government contract we had. We went from a multi-million dollar company to a zero dollar company in a day. Wow. Yeah, that's that's incredibly hectic. That's one of those things where 
for most of us, it was a day of like a terrorist attack. And for everyone, it was that. But on top of that, businesses were shocked as well. Like something like that doesn't happen ever. That was the last big event that I think brought the entire nation together as of which the coronavirus is now on a world scale, but kind of equally impactful in every single person's lives. Absolutely. And it, it was interesting after 9-11, there was a lot of shock. And I think that people are experiencing that same shock right now. Um, and, you know, we, we walked around for days and not a single airplane went overhead and, and it was quiet and it was, it was amazing. It was like, wow, you know, no airplanes. That's weird. And then I remember the first airplane that went overhead, I was at a youth soccer game and an airplane, a little, little puddle jumper or something went overhead. It was like, oh, an airplane, you know, everyone was pointing at the airplane going, oh my gosh, an airplane hit the sky. Like, wow, mm-hmm. it's, we're kind of starting to go back to normal. Were um, the following days, were people afraid to go outside at all? Um, or not so much? People were starting to think about, you know, wow, large gatherings are targets. Large buildings with lots of people in them are targets. We never viewed ourselves that way. I mean, there was the Oklahoma City bombing that occurred. And you know, that was very shocking that a building could get blown up from the ground um and so there was always an awareness that that threat existed but for it to be so so large scale really made people pause and think and wonder it's like you know is it safe to go over this overpass is someone gonna blow up an overpass is someone gonna you know crash something into another building what's what's happening so there was a bit of fear um but it was it was a lot of shock um more shock than fear yeah i can only imagine I mean, right now, it's. I think a lot of people are living in fear just because of the things you create in your head. Whether you don't know if you're going to go out and get coronavirus, you don't know when it's going to get you, kind of thing. But I mean, I can speak for myself. For me, I'm more afraid of giving it to someone like my parents, someone who it's really, really going to like inflict them. And I don't know if I would be carrying it. It's an interesting time. You know, you mentioned fear and. At some point, you know, I, I came across, this is a long time ago, uh, I came across a, a saying or a quote in a book or wherever I saw it, and it, you know, it said fear, you know, as an acronym is forget everything and run. You know, you just, when you're in fear, your brain forgets everything and you run. Um, but it could also be a different acronym of um, face everything and react. And I think that that's what we need to be doing as a community is we need to be facing this reality that wow, we need to change right now what we're doing so that we can protect the people who are at risk, that we can protect each other. And that's how we need to react right now. We don't need to be, you know, forgetting everything and running and carrying on as if nothing's happening. We need to be reacting to this. And that reaction needs to be something that makes sense for not only yourself, but everybody around you. Put that in your Facebook status. Yeah, that's incredibly profound. I've I've never (laughs) heard that before. Well, they sit there silently in shock. Yeah, I'm just taking that in. <laughs> fear is a lot more prominent in nature. It's something that's really deep within us because before we had hospitals and healthcare, if you were afraid of something that was possibly going to hurt you, you wanted to stay away of, as far away from it as possible. And I think it's kind of something that in times like this where it's something you don't fully understand, it's kind of already in your nature to be afraid of things. That's one of those things where it's like, the things such as toilet paper shortage, like people freaking out. Oh my gosh, we need to get toilet paper and kind of losing sight of that community help of, okay, like if we all sort of work together, go out at different times, flatten that curve, it's like 
okay, we can all help each other and sort of using our sort of current evolved state away from our original caveman state to try and work as a community rather than work as the individual. Absolutely. And it's interesting because you, you know, early on in the podcast, you mentioned, you know, leadership and what's, you know, what are, what does it take to be a leader? And I mentioned communication and, you know, we're all afraid all of the time. And when something like this happens, people are afraid of losing their jobs. People are afraid of going to work. It's like, do I go to work and risk dying? Uh, they're afraid to go out or they're afraid of running out of toilet paper, whatever it is. And I think uh, leaders of any size, you know, whether it's leading a small team, leading uh, a large organization, leading a nation, um, that communication that you have with your people is what you're doing to temper that fear, to get people to understand what is important, what needs to be done, how they can contribute, how they can help. And we're all communicating all the time and, you know, looking at a situation and having the emotional intelligence to say, okay, let me step back. Let me take a third party perspective to this or to this ordeal. What do we need to do here? What, what's going to be the best for the individual, for the organization, for each other, um, for the, for the economy and finding that right, right path forward. And I think that's what a lot of leaders are struggling with right now is what is that path? It's not predictable right now. And it really is about finding that balanced pathway forward that takes into account everybody's fears, which is getting sick or getting someone else sick, while continuing to function as a community. Yeah, well, it's a very profound problem that we're having right now. It's never seen before that a world's been so interconnected and globalized, and that's why it's taken over so much. But then never before has someone had to lead a economy like this that is so interconnected that all of a sudden China is not creating items that we purchase, therefore taking the floor out from underneath us and just avalanching other things around it. And then leaders nowadays, like in our town, are having to lead this on a smaller scale even to think about the bigger economy as a whole behind it. Yeah, and I think that's very true. I mean, you you look around and you look at the people that are impacted by this, and it's really easy to to just make assumptions and broad stroke. Oh, they're fine. Oh, they're not. Um, restaurant industries hit. Uh, agriculture is fine. Whatever it is, uh, but it's really it's it's affecting everybody in a different way. Um, I was just uh, chatting with a farmer yesterday, and and he was sharing that farmers are having to turn under their crops and essentially destroy growing food because restaurants are no longer buying food. So for the for those people that had contracts to sell to restaurants, that demand is not there and getting a new buyer in time isn't there. And so even agriculture is affected. You think it's a protected industry, but it's not. No one's protected in this. This is truly going to affect everybody. That That's wild to think about is just the far-reaching effects. And I was curious to know, like, I mean, as a leader in this community – and someone who's spearheading efforts in all different departments, like what goals is San Luis looking for in the next 10 years, 20 years? Like where is this community trying to go? And like, you know, what's getting in the way of that other than necessarily coronavirus? Oh, absolutely. I mean, San Luis Obispo uh, has an economic development plan as a city and as a region. 
Um, there are organizations that are fully committed to this. And you know, as you all know, Diablo Canyon is decommissioning and will be shutting down. And uh, as soon as that announcement was made, a group of community members came together to address the economic impact of that. There was an economic impact study done. Um, and you know, the group of people that are coming together include government, business, civic organizations, um, nonprofit organizations, and they came together to address, you know, the future economic success of San Luis Obispo and San Luis Obispo County and the greater region, which goes really down to Vandenberg as well and to Santa Barbara County. Um, and what's happened as this crisis has emerged is that the group has pivoted very quickly uh, to addressing this economic crisis. And whether it's government, civic organizations, businesses, nonprofits, everybody's pivoting. And I'm really impressed with all organizations who have come together and, you know, teamed up and said, look, let's put aside our, our differences. Let's not squabble. Let's figure out what this region needs. And new groups are forming. Consolidation is happening. Uh, new relationships are occurring. And, you know, never before has government and business and civic and nonprofit collaborated so closely uh, around the economic future of San Luis Obispo. Yeah, what does that economic impact look like once Diablo leaves? Because I know they're one of the lead employers of San Luis Obispo as a whole, and I know they bring in a lot of the standard income for this community. Oh, it's 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 a big impact. I mean, there's a lot of head, whole, head of household jobs. Um, there's a lot of uh, economic benefit that gets brought into our community by having them. There's the tax rolls that uh, happened because of Diablo and that money is gonna fade away. It really really is gonna fade away uh, the people that uh, Worked at Diablo or work at Diablo They may retire out and leave the workforce. They may have to get retrained. They may leave the community um, Everyone's gonna have their own story uh, But that'll have a ripple effect as well and then the people that support Diablo whether it's directly or indirectly uh, you know, whether, I mean, it could be a, an accountant doing a tax return for an employee at pg and &E. You know, it could be that far removed. Um, the grocery stores that sell to those employees, et cetera, uh, that, it'll definitely have a ripple effect. So the, the organizations that are coming together to address that, uh, you know, one of them is, is called REACH, uh, formerly called Hourglass. They, they rebranded after they became the their own organization that's committed to this. Uh, they're all about understanding the ripple effect and shoring up other industries, other economic drivers, so that when that moment really comes to us, it isn't as hard of a hit as it would be if we ignored the problem. Yeah, I did a little bit of research on myself on that and just looking into how that's going to affect the community. And the way I understand it is that as the city as a whole, the school district gets a lot of money from PG&E for having a nuclear power plant in the county. And I'm just curious, I have no idea if this is actually correlated, but recently they've been developing a lot of houses in San Luis Obispo. Uh, wondering if that income is coming in through property taxes. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, the, the tax impact is definitely substantial. And uh, the city of San Luis Obispo, you know, they have a great team that's focused on financial planning for the city. Uh, they've been looking at this since it was announced. And... They're looking at all sorts of revenue sources for uh, supplementing the revenues to the city that will be 
lost as a result of the uh, Diablo Canyon closure and the, lock, the loss of property taxes related to that and, and sales taxes and all the other taxes. Um, and they've done a good job at, you know, controlling costs, bringing costs, uh, you know, in line with future revenue that will come in. But they've also done things like a sales tax measure that increases the revenue rolls, cannabis tax. You know, there's a lot of things that they have that, that uh, are opportunities for them to mitigate that. Uh, but, you know, we, we, we are lucky here. We have a full city with full city resources like a fire department and a police department, uh, you know, public works, public parks, you name it. And that's all funded by tax revenue. And so they're having to balance that, uh, you know, full service city with the ta- tax rolls that come in. And it really is about diversifying where that money comes from. Yeah. And so this is like a, a plan to develop new companies and industries within slow to retain these workers to bring in more money into the community would that look in because i know cal poly is one of the next larger employers because we have tech companies like ifixit or mindbody that bring in outside money and then we have tourism that comes in and plays a very big role here is it kind of looking to build more companies within those industries it's really about helping the local area businesses succeed. Um, obviously the city isn't running businesses. They aren't starting businesses. We don't buy, you know, businesses coming here. We're not going out to city to, to organizations saying, please move to San Luis Obispo. There are communities that do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not one of them. We, we aren't doing business attraction in that way. People are attracted to San Luis Obispo, the region of San Luis Obispo, uh, because of the quality of life. And they're willing to bring their businesses here with them or start a business here themselves. Um, when that happens, the, uh, the city works hard to try and support the economic realities that that business faces. Um, one of the things that the San Luis Obispo Chamber does is advocate on behalf of the business to ensure that economic success so that the taxes aren't too high um, and that the you know, impact the government has on business isn't too burdensome in, you know, in terms of regulatory items or whatever it is. Um, but at the end of the day, there is a balance between government and business, and and you can't just stick your you know flag in the ground and say we won't pay taxes because you then won't have a full service city. So it's a difficult thing to balance, and I think that our community does a good job in you know playing that balancing act between uh, tax legislation, regulation, and what our businesses need to succeed. Definitely. That, that is incredible, just how much is going on behind the scenes. And I can only imagine for you personally how much you have going on with all these different organizations and, and everything. I, I'm just curious, what does your day look like? What does the day of, of a leader in San Luis Obispo look like? There's a lot of coffee involved. Um, <laughs> and sometimes I wake up pretty early and start my day off really just kind of orienting to the priorities of now. Do you have a specific time? Are you a 6 a.m., 5 a.m., or 4 a.m.? It's changed based on my career. Um, You know, on a good day, it's 5 a.m. I'm never up before 5. I think at one point I was getting up at 5 minutes to 5, and uh, that was really hard. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it's anywhere between 5 and 6, depending on the day and what I have ahead of me. Um, And so my morning's really spent, you know, assessing what's ahead, my current priorities, taking care of what I call chores, which is uh, making sure I've cleaned up the clutter of my, my business life, um, whether it's emails or you know to-do lists. Uh, it's just kind of pushing things aside that, that 
you know, I can in the wee mornings of the day. And then really, once the day, the business day starts, there's a lot of meetings and there's a lot of communicating. It's a lot of coordinating. And it's difficult to find even a half hour of dedicated think time, of dedicated work time where you're uninterrupted. Um, there are, there are been, there have been times in my career where the nature of the work has allowed that, such as being a CPA and being locked in my office for an hour while I, you know, put out some sort of complex schedule. But, you know, the, the more, you know, executive the position, the less opportunity there is for that. And so there's just a lot of uh, communicating, putting out fires, you know, keeping everything on track, planning for the future that happens during working hours. And then as the day concludes and people start filtering home and start filtering into quiet mode, there's a reconnection among leaders in the organization of like, how, how are the things going? Um, what's, what's next? So that you can start to plan the next day um, or the next week or what's ahead. So there's a lot of circling back around at the end of the day that happens before the day really concludes. And then, you know, beyond that, it's, you know, head home, eat well, do, do family time, uh, snuggle with the cat, whatever, whatever the, you know, evening entails, uh, socializing. Um, but it's, it's pretty, pretty manageable. Um, some days are definitely busier than others, but, uh, at the end of the day, somehow all the work gets done. Definitely. Uh, for someone like myself or, or, or even Brayden, like students coming out into the workforce, like 40 hour weeks, they seem like a lot. Like you're working, I, I assume at least 40 hours a week, like time management. Like, what have you found? It's like, this is the most important thing for business students or students in general. How do you manage your time? Like what is the most important tool you use? Um, I think most important is you have to know yourself. We all have different personalities. Some of us are task-based. Some of us are process-based. Some of us are relationship-based. And so you have to know your personality and how you work. Um, there are things that give you energy and there are things that take away energy and you have to balance that you have to do things that give you energy so that you can sustain yourself that could be chit-chatting with a colleague if you're going to chit-chat with a colleague make it productive uh, there are times when chit-chatting with people takes away energy <laughs> because you're taking away from your work find out how to you know navigate that so knowing yourself and knowing your person your own personality will help with the navigation of time management, because you'll start to realize, oh, this gave me a boost, this gave me energy, I can be more productive, I need to incorporate more of this into my work life, um, so that the things that take away my energy don't leave me drained or burned out. And then once you figure that out of balancing your, your uh, motivation, energy level, um, and you know, focus, then it's really like, okay, how can I be the most productive? How can I really maximize my time? And some people it's to-do lists. Some people it's regular check-ins with somebody. Some some other folks, you know, they like to make promises and then they, you know, are like, uh-oh, I gotta go <laughs> deliver on that promise. Um, so everyone's got their own motivator. Um, for me, I'm a, I'm a, I love a checklist. I, like if there's 20 things on a checklist, I'm like, let's do this. You know, I'm, I'm just all about that checklist. Um, but I also draw energy with interacting with people. Um, and so I, I definitely need to incorporate that into my life so that I stay energetic and motivated to, to work on my to-do list. Yeah. I think there's a lot in there in the last three years, I've really worked on my motivation and my productivity. 
I kind of reached a point in my life where I was in school and I just realized I wanted to align myself a little more with things I do with my free time and going through engineering and going into the workforce to where, like you said, like going through that objectively, finding things that are taking your time and your energy that are not necessarily serving you in the best of ways when you could substitute it out with something else and something that really changed my life because by nature, I could just go all day, shoot from the hip, never plan anything and just go on through my day that way. But once I learned of how to make a schedule and even on Sundays, just to write down a skeleton of what you think your week's going to look like, the amount it has helped me each day and even each day writing a to-do list, like you said, because I never did those either. But once I started doing it, I started learning the satisfaction you have of checking, checking those boxes off. off. Absolutely. I'm, I'm a huge to-do list person. Like if I don't have a to-do list, it's probably not getting done. So it's very important <laughs> for me to put it on a to-do list and really get that out there because otherwise it's falling by the wayside yeah things that are on the list and too it's cool to look back like i'm holding this book that i got probably about a i'm holding a uh, book that i got about uh six months ago and this is the first ever almost journal notebook that i just record things down if i have something that someone's telling me it's interesting instantly just go down and write it down and it's cool going back through it as i'm reaching the last few pages in this book of going through all the experiences and things I've done from these to-do lists throughout the last six months. And it's been kind of rewarding because this is the first time I've ever filled out a book cover to cover like this. Definitely. And we, we talked a lot last episode about mental health and everything and, and how you can improve that. And these times, and I know you're an avid triathlete, like how are you using that both now and in the workplace, both finding time for that and, and using it to help you? Oh, absolutely. I think that, um, you know, our bodies are kind of all we have, you know, our mind is in our body. Um, and the, the more the body is healthy, the more the mind can be healthy. And so, um, I don't know that I'm the healthiest person around. I definitely love my sweets and, um, you know, having a beer, but you know, I do take care of my body and exercise and, and I've learned a lot through using my body. Um, and there's an outlet there. It's, it definitely helps clear the mind you know, gets the endorphins going, whatever is happening chemically in my body when I'm exercising. Um, it, it's really, for me, been a, a wonderful thing for me to do and to incorporate into my life. And, you know, there's been times in my life that I have not been motivated to exercise. And, you know, for me, at one point, I was, you know, just not feeling great about where I was physically. And I just told myself, I'm like, you're not allowed to take a shower until you sweat. And I can tell you what, if you hold that promise, eventually you will exercise um, because eventually you do want that shower. So um, that's kind of become a thing for me over the years is like, haven't sweat, can't shower. So um, I do shower on days I don't, don't sweat, but uh, it really has kept me active because it makes my shower much more meaningful uh, to, to me instead of just my morning wake up call. It's been you know, it's, it's been the symbol of success. It's like, no, I got my exercise in, I've earned the shower and, and now I'm going to smell pretty afterwards. Yeah. And so Emerson said, said you're a triathlete, so yeah. you're mostly cardio based. A lot of cardio endurance. Um, it's, it's really for me, the, the multiple disciplines that I enjoy. It's, it's not just one thing. It's mm -hmm. many sports. Mm -hmm. Do you notice, I seem to notice when I do cardio versus anything else, different types of exercises really boost my mental in different ways. Like say I go to the gym and hit a really hard workout there and I have the pump. 
totally different feeling than if I go and run five miles. I've noticed that when I run cardio and run five miles, that little voice that you have in your head, that's always yapping and talking about different things. It silences it. And a lot of times I have the clearest days if I wake up and go for a run. Yeah, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. And it's, it's great. I mean, the, the, physical benefit of cardio is outstanding and it does do something in your brain um you know when you do a little too much cardio it does a different thing and starts telling you to stop and (laughs) telling you to quit and all sorts of things but um you know i think that it it does help your body find its place uh you know in, in health and you get feedback from your body and and your mind on on what's working for you and so I think there's a lot of value in strength training and in, in flexibility training. Um, but I think there's also tremendous value in cardiovascular training as well. You, I think, are also super into open water swimming. Do you have a group that does that? Is there a way people join that group? Is it sort of just a friend thing? If you will swim with me in the ocean, you are my groupie. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, the, the interesting thing about swimming uh, in the ocean or in a lake is you know once you put your face in that water um, it's you and your mind um, and that water and you really spend a lot of time grappling with what's on your mind and your fears Um, obviously you put your face in the ocean and you spend five minutes convincing yourself that this was a good idea because it's cold around here and it's like why am I out here what am I doing? And, and it's, it's interesting to go through that internal dialogue of fighting the cold uh, and the discomfort of being in the water initially. Um, and that's pretty representative of a lot of things in life because there's things on my to-do list I don't want to do. And I spend five minutes fighting them and then eventually finding comfort in it. Um, and then the next five minutes is usually trying not to think about sharks. And then once you get past that, you're, you're thinking about all sorts of things in life um, as you get in your, your rhythm of your swim. Um, but it really is amazing to be so completely disconnected from the world and be just a few hundred yards from the world. Um, because once you're out in the water, you're on your own. You're, it's you in the water and whatever's in it. And that's all there is. And it's your body that's going to get you back to shore. Um, and I will not call the Coast Guard. <laughs> I, I got to get myself back to shore. So, um, you know, I've got to make sure I have the energy and fitness to do so. But, uh, you know, it's always safer to do it in a group. Um, so there is a group here locally that swims out in Avila Beach uh, every Sunday. It's called the Slow Dolphins. We're a very informal group. We're just a bunch of people that show up at the same time in the same place and swim together. Um, it's not a club or anything like that. But uh, it's, you know, it's a good group of people. And we all share a love of swimming in open water and um the benefits of that and i tell you what there's there's no sport quite like open water swimming i can imagine it's it's not like going for a run you can't just pause and go for you know five minutes of walking because if you stop when you're in the ocean the current will just take you away um and so you actually have to keep moving the whole time or else uh you wind wind up working twice as hard yeah what you said about i guess how alone you are out there i've never really thought about that but Swimming might be the most personal sport because you're you can't talk to anyone. You're underwater. It's just you, your breathing, and your thoughts. I've never really thought about that before. You're barely even seeing anyone because you're head down. You know. Yeah, <laughs> it, but it is open water though. 
do you ever get afraid of what could potentially be in the water? Oh, absolutely. I had a, <laughs> I had a incident last summer, I think it was, or the one before, where I was swimming along, and there was probably six or seven of us out in the water. We were very spaced apart. Maybe, you know, the next closest person was probably 30 yards away from me, um, which if you're looking at a swimming pool is more than the length of a swimming pool. Um, and we probably had, you know, a couple hundred yards between all of us. And I was swimming along. My face was down. We don't have particularly clear water on the central coast, but it was fairly clear that day. And um, all of a sudden, bubbles came up from underneath. And it took me a solid, you know, fat second to realize that bubbles don't come from the ocean floor. And I started thinking about what that meant for me. And I was like, okay, do sharks have bubbles? I don't actually know the answer to that. I did Google it later. They, they actually kind of don't. Um, and I started thinking about dolphins, but the sheer volume of bubbles led me to realize this is probably a whale. And so I stopped, I popped my head up and I looked over and there was another gentleman swimming. He must've had the same experience because he stopped and popped up. Um, and just 20 yards ahead of him, a, a big whale just, you know, came up out of the water in front of him. And we both looked at each other and went, whoa, um, I guess we'll just keep swimming because it's here and it's been here this whole time. It didn't eat us. Uh, we're still alive. So um, we'll just keep swimming. But yeah, there's always, you know, thoughts of what's in that water. Um, I, I have heard of a guy that got, you know, pinched by a crab sitting on kelp. So I didn't think. Gotta watch out for the kelp. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't think crabs were a problem out in the middle of the ocean, but apparently they are. Um, so there's always something out there that that is you know on your mind, but it's part of being in nature. Yeah. yeah, that's also something about this place that's so amazing is the marine life here is because it's not as hyper intensive as SoCal or NorCal that we have. It's almost a sanctuary for a lot of these animals. Like what you're saying, if that was in Avila, like I've been out there paddle boarding and all of a sudden I see everyone out on the pier across the way. I'm just like, what's that? I'm going to go over to them. And then all of a sudden I'm in the middle of five whales just breaching. And you really don't realize how big they are until you see them up close and you hear them breathe. You just hear, it just keeps on going. And you're just like, that is so much volume. This yeah. animal is inhaling. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. Whale's great, but if I was swimming without a without a board or anything, and I saw bubbles coming from the bottom, I'd probably have a heart attack. Like that, <laughs> yeah. the, the story freaks me out. I'm like, you know, that thing that thing has no idea that you're there. And I remember I was surfing in Morro Bay. This must have been ten years ago, and we were driving back, and there was this huge commotion, and a whale had come into Morro Bay and had surfaced underneath a surfer, unbeknownst to the surfer. And he, like, fell off the top of this whale. Like, true story in Morro Bay. Like, that is freaky. They have no idea you're there. They're just they're just living. Yeah, and it's also one of those things where amazing animal, not going to harm you unless he doesn't see you. And he doesn't mean to harm you. But if he so much as bumps into me, that's like you got hit by a bus. Yeah, they're definitely not small. And, and it is interesting. I mean, you know, the unique thing about open water swimming is you spend so much time in fear that when the fear materializes, it's easy to stay calm. You know, it's easy to be like, oh, I've thought through this scenario. And actually, I had not thought through the bubble scenario before in my life, which now I do regularly. Um, but I think that, you know, it's, it's kind of that fear acronym, you know, like face everything and react. When you're mentally prepared for something and mentally prepared for adversity and challenge, it's a lot easier to react 
calmly and not have that heart attack. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I personal anecdote here with Braden. That brings me to a story of Braden and I are surfing out at Morro Bay. Classic. We love it. And this guy comes paddling over and he's like, hey, we just saw a shark over there. You might want to head in. We look at each other. We're like, okay, like we'll think about it. And then we see a guy paddling in front of us and a shark actually pops up behind him. We see two fins. We're like, oh, it's got this very real. real. Like, and we looked at each other and there was this weird calmness to everyone. Like no one started freaking out. And we were like, okay, like it's time. Like, let's go in. Yeah, it's time to and, go in. And we end up catching this wave. And I, I don't know what was going on in our heads, but we both stood up on the wave and we're surfing next to each well, other. Even, even before that, just sets coming in. We see the shark coming and we're like, it's time to go. First set comes. We're like, everyone's going to get this. Everyone's going to go in. We're going to be good. Some Jim, Jom, Jack, or Jub outside, huge longboard, takes the wave and cuts off every single person trying to get on this wave. And everyone's angry, yelling and everything. But this guy takes the wave and rides it all the way in. And we're like, we're done. It's over. I'm being eaten by a shark right now. <laughs> right and now. Subsequently, we end up catching the next wave. We stand up on it. I'm in front of Braden. Sure, I may have dropped in on him. Whatever. And I, I kid you not, I hear Braden behind me singing a song going, Braden and Emerson surfing away from a shark. And I has stuck in my head since that moment. It's a great and, song. One hit wonder. I was blown away. It's, I was like, wow, what, the pre- what a presence of mind to sing this song. And we end up getting to the beach. And we turn around. Wave comes up. There ended up being like a 15-foot no, great yeah, white shark. No, yeah, it was just like Shark Week. We were just, I have a picture of it, just everyone wa- sitting along the beach, just looking out. The ocean's empty because everyone's gone in. And you just see this silver line start going uh, like across the water as the fin comes up, right as a wave peels. And you can see the whole entire shark in the face of the wave. And the thing that blew my mind, I knew obviously there's sharks out there, something you kind of come to the mental with. But I didn't quite fathom how fast they are. There is no possible way, if it wanted to get you, you could get away from it. That honestly, I had the same experience and the same realization. It kind of gave me some comfort because I was like, okay, like if it wants me, it's going to get me. Yeah, like, just accept I was like, it. just kind of accept it. And then sort of seeing it, and I was like, wow, like, it's meant to be here and we are not meant to be here. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'm Division One water polo player. Like, I can swim pretty well. It, it doesn't matter. Like, yeah, there's you a reason you call the shark the landlord. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There's a reason he's been around yeah. for a, a long time. Been here since the dinosaurs. But yeah, they uh, they said it was 15 feet. They confirmed it the next day. That's not what you want to hear. That's not <laughs> what I want to hear. <laughs> but uh, yeah, as as we sort of and Hillary's free swimming, <laughs> <laughs> right by there. Um, but I guess as we sort of start to close out this episode, we want to ask you some some tips just for people. Yeah, on the, off on the come up, just some wisdom that you could sort of impart on people for anyone like someone a business student coming up or someone starting a business someone trying to get into the workforce like what are some things to focus on for people coming in like oh absolutely kind of to bring it all together um you know we talked about sports and exercise and leadership and and it's an interesting thing with with sports um because you know there's a saying and in, in in endurance racing that the hardest part of the race is getting to the starting line to get to get to the start of the race because you have to get there injury free you have to get there healthy and you have to have the mindset to actually execute on the race and that couldn't be more true in life um you know school is getting you to the starting line um, you think about graduation and finishing school, and that's not the finish line by any stretch. And it's actually not really the starting point. Um, you're going to go out in the world, 
have your first career job. And it's really about learning. It's learning from your peers, your colleagues, the people that have been there, done that, um, so that you can really hone in on your craft and your trade so that you can someday, you know, and as depending on your, your career path, reach your peak, reach your, your, your happy place in your career life and really be successful. Um, and so, you know, when I started thinking about my career as almost like a, you know, a race of, you know, training for a race, you know, showing up to work tomorrow is not the race. The, it's, it's the training to get to the starting line because I know at some point in my future, I will be challenged in a way that I haven't been challenged yet. And I need to be ready for that. And so it's always getting ready for the next challenge ahead and the next race ahead. Um, Cause nothing could have prepared me for the economic collapse we're experiencing, the public health crisis we're experiencing. But I was, you know, glad that I could rely on 20 years experience, all my education, the, countless hours of communicating that I've done in my life to go, okay, you know, we've hit a crisis. We need to communicate. We need to plan. We need to contingencies. We need to mitigate, um, et cetera. And I, my mind was race ready and it's a, a race that I don't know if I can finish. I hope I can. Um, but it really is a great analogy for looking at careers, uh, is you're never, finished with the race you know you're just starting the race every day and every day you're you're trying to get to the start line um, and that takes endurance it takes discipline it takes mental fortitude um, it takes excitement uh, I can guarantee if I am not excited about a race if I am not excited about a project um, or the the task at hand I'm probably not going to be very successful at it and so it's finding your your superpower it's finding your your mojo and the thing that makes you excited and throwing everything into it, um, throwing, throwing yourself into it so that you're in peak condition to perform. For someone who maybe doesn't know what is their jam or what they can really throw themselves into as a personal interest that they can thrive in, what would you recommend to someone who's looking for their niche? Be willing to fail over and over and over and don't be afraid of it. Um, because I can tell you what, I have failed so many things and I'm an overachiever. So when I fail, I fail big and I feel fail strong. <laughs> um, and so it's really looking at a new opportunity, a new adventure, a new attempt and saying, you know, I might just fail. This might not be it, but that's okay. I'm going to, I'm going to explore it. I'm going to understand it. I'm not going to be afraid of it. I'm going to give it my best. I'm going to learn about it. Um, and then if you do fail or it fails you, uh, dust yourself up and go, okay, you know, that wasn't the one. I got to just try another one. And sometimes it wasn't the right place of business or it wasn't the right discipline of business. It wasn't the right uh, time. Uh, whatever it is, there's, there's many reasons for failure. Um, some of it may or may not be all on you, but uh, it's really learning from each failure and saying, okay, I'm not doing that again. I'm going to do something different. And then, you know, just getting better and better. And it, it, you have to fail to figure out how to succeed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, and that kind of ties in with everything. And I know there's lots of people out there, um, you know, as someone who has a lot of experience in startup companies, like what are some pitfalls for people trying to get into business, trying to start their own business everywhere from, 
someone who has no business experience to someone who's a business student, like what are some pitfalls to hopefully avoid um, in starting a company? You know, when you start a company, it's very different because you are the company. You are everything. And, um, you know, ignorance is not an excuse. Being able to say, I didn't know or I didn't see or I didn't expect is not an excuse. It just isn't because there's no room for it. And so when you're going to starting a business, you have to be so multidisciplined in terms of what you're starting, whether you're going to start a technical business or a um, service business or a product business. Um, you kind of have to be good at all parts of the business until you can build out a team. And then as you build out that team, it's really learning where where you need to let go because you've spent so much time being all things that it's hard to let go of being all things. And then you really need to focus on what makes you successful and your business successful and your team successful and starting to let go of things and letting your team take over for you. And that's a hard transition to make for people who have gone from solo startup to now leading a team. Um, and it's, it's a challenge that I think would affect everybody, but definitely something to be thinking about, uh, as you're, you know, experiencing that. That's incredible insight. And hopefully, you know, that, that helps someone out and yeah, me, especially that's really big stuff, but I myself am really into reading and I've been told that if you want to get to know someone and know how someone functions, read their five favorite books. What's one book that you would recommend to people out there that you've held closely to yourself? Absolutely. I think that, you know, there's there's so many answers to that. I've, I've read a lot of books um, and, you know, have, have quite the library. I think I've given away most of the books because I, I get excited to share them. Mm-hmm. So you need to read this and they get passed along. Um, one book that really uh, was interesting to me was The Tipping Point by Malcolm Gladwell. Um, super interesting book that looked at so many different things and how you know so many little things pile up to make a big thing happen um and i've really taken a lot of away from that book uh in my life since i've read it so that one was really good um another interesting book that i don't know is in publication still i think it's actually been pulled from the the bookshelf just whether it's lack of interest or um you know, the author just didn't continue publishing it, is a book called Corporate Confidential. Um, If you can get your hands on it, it's a very interesting read, particularly if you're early in your career. And it's essentially, you know, uh, the down low on why you get fired or the down low on why you're not getting promoted, um, why you're not advancing your career, whatever it is. And it's kind of like a real blunt, like, maybe it's because you suck. Maybe it's because you're grumpy. Maybe because it's, you know, you're just you know, not behaving correctly. And I really appreciated the book because there were things in my career, you know, where I wasn't succeeding like I wanted, or I wasn't getting the results I wanted. And it kind of helped me look at at different scenarios and go, oh, I can react to this. I can adapt to this. I can understand this and, and behave differently or, or embrace it differently and find my way through it. Um, and so it's a super interesting book. It's, it's rather short, but it's old, um, and I don't. I've been. A, I haven't been able to find it because there's a few people I've wanted to give it to and haven't been able to order it. But if you can get your hands on an old one, it's always interesting. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, that that's incredible, and and hopefully we can get our hands on that because I know we kind of wanted to start a sort of a guest reading list um, of books that you know are super valuable for people to read uh, of any discipline, and 
Absolutely. And thank you so much for... Uh, and I th- I I'd, think al- I'd also highly recommend the U.S. tax code. I've read the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to pass on that one for now. <laughs> but I think it's also something to promote reading more and more with our generation and the ones below us because it was something I stumbled upon kind of by accident and really started changing the way I looked at the world because of when I'm reading a book, it's almost changes the way I see the world while I'm reading that book. And a little piece of that carries on with me as I go. And that's why I like to ask that question to all sorts of people that I look up to, to try to get into the headspace that you find yourself in, in hard times and what it takes to overcome certain obstacles. Um, one question I'd love to ask is what is one of your favorite memories ever in San Luis Obispo? My favorite memories ever. Oh my goodness. When I was a very young girl in grade school, probably fourth or fifth grade, one of my neighbors, um, lived near a sewage drain, one, one that big round one that comes out the side of a mountain and being so young and small, we could walk in it. You know, we were small enough to just walk in it. And so one day, I think it was a teacher work day or summer day or something, we just took off and went in it and um, kept popping up in grates that were like a mile away. I mean, we were in there for hours and hours and we were like, oh my gosh, look at that, we're downtown. Oh my gosh, look at that, we're over here. And it really made me realize that underneath our feet, is a sewer system that's very connected. So it's, it's the storm drain system. It's not it's not raw sewage. Uh, but there's a drain system that's very connected, and it all leads to the creeks. Um, and so that was a really insightful moment as a young child to realize that from my friend's house, we could get anywhere through the storm drains. Um, and, and that was very memorable because we got, you know, pretty yelled at for doing that, one, for disappearing for so long, and two, for spending so much time in there. Uh, I don't know that I'd recommend it today, but um, you know, back in the early 80s, it was, it was an amazing thing to do. That's awesome. Definitely. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for coming on. It's been incredible having you. It's been very insightful, and uh, we look forward to talking to you more. Yeah, there's a lot in this podcast. Thank Excellent. you very much Appreciate for your wisdom. Appreciate you guys having me on, and uh, good time being here, and uh, look forward to seeing what you guys produce in the future. Thank you so much. All right, episode two. This is Slow Pod. Hello, Braden and Emerson here. Social media is all systems go. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at the S L O P O D. Facebook is coming soon at that same handle. If you guys like this episode, please tell your friends and share the podcast. Email us at the slow pod at gmail.com tell us what you think we'd love to know and finally if you really loved what we are building here you can donate to the project using patreon for one time donations and anchor for monthly donations both under the s-l-o-p-o-d all donations go back into giving you a better experience links to these sites can be found on both our instagram and twitter thank you again for all your support ciao